Parenting is a full-time job, and providing effective support for today's teens can be challenging. The Parent Engage 360 podcast aims to provide connections and information from experts in the fields of chemical health, mental health, internet safety, and more. It's a comprehensive view on parenting, provided in a personal, convenient format. Tune in to today's episode of the Parent Engage 360 podcast series. Hello, thank you for joining us today. I'm Liz Burgard, the Parent Involvement Coordinator. There are many factors that may impact the way we feel about ourselves and the way we show up each day. One of these topics that impacts us all, let alone students, is body image. On today's episodes, we're going to hear from Heather Gallivan, Clinical Director from Melrose Center, and Jessica Patterson, a licensed school nurse at Northdale Middle School, on what they are seeing in their roles and ways for us as parents and guardians to offer support. Heather and Jessica, thank you so much for being here today. I'm thrilled to have you here and to learn from each of you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. Heather, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and Melrose Center where you currently work? Sure. I've worked at Melrose Center for almost 19 years. I'm a clinical psychologist by training and initially came to Melrose Center and worked on our inpatient unit and with our partial hospitalization program. I've been the clinical director here for about the last 10 years. And in my role, I still see patients, um, but I also oversee kind of our treatment program across our five sites throughout the Twin Cities. Um, Melrose Center was founded over 35 years ago by a pediatrician working at Methodist Hospital. And um, at the time she was noticing adolescents coming in with severe eating disorders, but there were no treatment options in the Twin Cities. And so she collaborated with a multidisciplinary team and developed our program which over 35 years has grown from a very small inpatient and outpatient program to um, a 39 bed residential facility where we offer kind of the full continuum of care in five sites across the Twin Cities. So we've come a long ways in those 35 years. In 2022, I was just gonna add that we served over 4,000 patients here at Melrose Center between the ages of nine to 69 and saw almost 2,000 patients for initial assessments. So you've seen a, a lot of people and I was impressed by when I went on the website, I know originally it was out of Methodist Hospital and then they built a separate building in St. Louis Park and then to see that there are multiple locations across the Twin Cities and also the wonderful resources that you guys do have on the website as well if parents are looking for somewhere to go and to start that to, to learn more. Absolutely. We have our own po podcast, actually. It's called Melrose Heels that is on um, a multitude of podcast platforms. Thanks for sharing a little bit about you and um, giving us an overview about, about Melrose. Jessica, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your role as a licensed school nurse in Anoka Hennepin Schools? Sure. So my name is Jess Patterson. I, I have been a nurse for 18 years. Um, the last 12 have been in public schools. So school nurses are essential for some kids to come to school. We take care of students that have chronic health conditions such as diabetes and asthma, anaphylaxic responses to allergies. We do a lot of health promotion, health prevention, health maintenance. We have a role in special education evaluations and the medical care of our students with special ed as well. And we see the general student body um, 
if someone's not feeling well, they usually show up in our office. And not feeling well can be not only physical symptoms, but it can be mental health. It can be, you name it, we kind of are the catch-all if, if we're here for all students. I don't think people think often about all of the things that the licensed school nurse does or the school nurse or the paras that also support students, whether it's the day-to-day needs with meds or the one-time thing about I'm sick and I need to go home. Mm -hmm. There's so many things that you guys do become the catch-all for, or at least the starting place for having a conversation with parents about coming to pick up their kids or things that you might be seeing if students are coming to visit you more frequently. Yep. So, and we also like, we manage monitoring like immunization compliance and um, infection control. Uh, When we see uh, influenza or we see COVID or we see norovirus, like we monitor all of those things as well to keep our populations healthy. Thank you for sharing a little bit about that because I don't think like we talked about people always think about the vital role that each of you play in our schools each and every day. Um, As we mentioned in the introduction, Many people struggle with their body image, which may lead to an eating disorder. It doesn't necessarily cause an eating disorder. Can you talk about this and how the two can possibly be related? Yes. Um, You know, I think you are correct. Actually, 80% of women in America um, struggle with body image or their weight or body shape. And about 80% of men ages 35 and younger also struggle Um, with body image, weight, and shape. And so it is a a significant problem in our culture and in our country. And it is one of the contributing factors that can lead to the development of an eating disorder. It's not the only thing, but oftentimes Mm -hmm. it is feeling unhappy in our body that can lead us to do something like, say, go on a diet or change behaviors in order to try to influence our body weight and shape. And for certain people who have other risk factors for eating disorder, that can get out of control and thus the development of an eating disorder happens. Heather, from your lens, what things are you seeing in relation to body image or things that maybe are impacting that from the the adolescents that are in sixth, seventh, and eighth grade? Yeah, you know, I think um, really it's been a tough few years for adolescents in not only here in the Twin Cities, but across the country. And um, we've actually seen a 40% increase in the number of adolescents coming to Melrose Center for treatment between 2019 through last year. Um, And so we've, you know, seen this incredible surge in demand for true eating disorder care. Um, And I think one of the things that contributes to body image really is our strong culture of social media. And this is not to say that all social media is bad because there are a lot of positive influences out there and movements around trying to, you know, embrace body positivity. But certainly we, you know, this goes back to more traditional forms of media too, that there is a link between media consumption um, and how people feel about their bodies. And I think the pandemic probably only increased people's consumption of social media and kind of worsen that. Um, And there's actually been some research around the differences between traditional media, so like magazines, television, and social media that really suggests that social media has a stronger impact on things like body image, depression, anxiety, because it is more personal and more personally directed than kind of our you know, traditional forms of media. And so that people take that on more personally and internally, which can then again lead them to down roads of unhealthy behaviors. 
I totally agree. Uh, that's exactly what we're seeing here in the middle school. The social media use is every day. It's like become like, how am I trying to say this? It's so normal. Like it's like you get up, you brush your hair, you brush your teeth, you check your social media. Like it's just become part of our students' daily rituals. Um, I mean, sometimes it's hard to even get through classes with kids just need to be on that. And they're just seeing all these you know visions and like they compare themselves to others on well I saw on snap the other day or this person on snap or that person on tiktok and it's it's intense it's a lot the thing that I found that I hadn't thought about is um because we know that eating disorders and body image have been impacted for a long time from what you had mentioned like with magazines and tv shows in the past but the part about social media now being specialized or it's like I get to choose who I'm following or I get to choose who I'm snapping with is really a diff a, a, something I hadn't thought about before and is really interesting when we're talking about this and having a conversation. I know both of you have been in your roles for 18 and 19 years. You've, you've worked with a lot of students. You've worked with a lot of people. Um, are there other things that you feel um, are really impacting our, our students or our youth today? Well, I think certainly just the pandemic in general um, has had a huge impact on um, students, mental health, certainly, and that, and beyond students, all of our mental health, it is a very unique experience that we all live through where, um, you know, one day we're living our normal lives and within like two days, our whole world has changed with um, a lot of anxiety, fear, we were isolated, so we pulled our kids out of school, they had to stop all sports and other activities, um, and there were a lot of unknowns. And so sometimes, you know, when there are major stressors and changes like that, and it feels like an out of control situation, um, human nature is to try to grasp for things, to get control or to sell, you know, soothe ourselves and deal with the distress of this. And that could be, you know, eating disorder behaviors, it could be self injury, it could be a lot of things that um, uh, have contributed to kind of a general decline in overall mental health. I think also during the pandemic, and even now, access to good resources for help have been limited or altered. Um, Honestly, the mental health system and here at Melrose, we've been overrun. There aren't enough hours in the day to meet the demand. In the early part of the the first year and a half of the pandemic, we saw a 300% increase in demand for services. Um, and so, you know, I think um, that is one thing that has certainly impacted our students and now, ha and now transitioning back to school. It's stressful. Um, for all of us, right? Students, parents, mm -hmm. school workers, um, to make that transition back, get kids caught up academically and developmentally. And, you know, missing two years of critical time of life is a big deal for middle schoolers and high schoolers and elementary kids. Yeah, I agree. That's the mental health need. It's, it's overrun here at schools too. We do not have the amount of staff that we would love to have to I mean we help as many kids as we can just like you guys do um, but and I think during the pandemic the access to social media was just there and I think a lot of it at times was unsupervised which I think doesn't help kids either and of no fault of it's just what it was during the pandemic we there was just there's just so much 
I agree. And I think, um, as you both mentioned, like it came on and we're all like trying to just manage our work, mm-hmm. manage our kids. We, we don't have our the sports outlet or the after school activities that maybe we were taking our kids to. So we were all just trying to figure it out and all, all adjust. And also it was important to have to still feel connected to others, right? Because we couldn't be together. So it was Absolutely. another way to be connected, to c- talk to people. But you had all day, every day to do things that maybe you didn't have that opportunity to, to do in the past because you're in school or you're at work. So I think both of you made really good points around that. Are you also seeing in the health office, Jessica, kind of an increase in some of those additional needs around anxiety, um, students having a stomach ache, like on top of maybe when you first started 18 years ago? Yes. Oh, absolutely. And it's not just a few kids. Like it used to be, you know, you had your five or six kids that would come once, twice a week because you were their break or they knew you were the place they could come and just like breathe this is much larger than that we see i mean in our health office 80 to 100 kids a day and some kids are sick right like kids get sick at school yep we manage that we get them home we take you know our kids with this anxiety are coming in and yes they are they feel sick because that is, they feel sick. That anxiety makes them feel sick. It's real. Um, But we have to really work to get to the reason why they don't feel good versus just sending them home. So there's a lot of, because sending them home is not necessarily the answer, right? Because if if we were all in this isolated, you know, we're all isolated, we're all at home and now we're back, like, continuing with that isolation is not going to help fix the anxiety or depression. Um, and so helping kids realize like, this is a safe place. School's a safe place. Let's, you know, it's hard. Yes, it's hard. We're here. We understand. We all went through this hard time and just moving forward together. So, um, yeah, we see, a, we've seen a huge increase across. I've talked to many nurse of my fellow nurses and it's across the district. It's, it's big. And I know both of you do just such a vital job with supporting our, our youth and their parents and really trying to find the correct care and support, whether it's with their body image, whether it's with an eating disorder, whether it's with anxiety, because as we know, and we've talked about a little bit, they all can be intertwined or they can be separate. Um, what do you recommend for parents who think that their child might be struggling with body image or self-worth intrusive thoughts? Um, and middle school and in high school, we know that kids are still developing, their frontal lobe is not developed. Um, They have a lot of social media usage. So what are things that parents can do if they're feeling like, I need to have a conversation with my kid or I need to do something, but I don't know what to do? Yeah, well, I think the first thing that parents can do is really um, be self-aware of what they are projecting and what they are doing to be a positive role model around that, right? Um, Because our actions and words about our our own bodies and our own selves, that of others, are really powerful influences on Mm -hmm. young people. And so I think it starts with that. Um, And being really willing to have difficult conversations with your child, which is not easy, but asking open-ended questions, not just yes, no, one word type of questions, Um, and being willing to kind of listen to hard things. It can be hard for us as parents to listen to our children hurting or, you know, be in pain. Um, 
but being a listening ear and offering to kind of help them get the help that they need can be really important. I think other things that parents can really do is, um, you know, helping kids understand that bodies come in all different shapes and sizes, right? If we mm -hmm. look around us, um, we will see that there is not just one um, way to be. The media might portray kind of this idealized body right. image, but the reality is we don't all have control over that, right? And so helping people kind of think critically because as you mentioned, developmentally kids' um, frontal cortex is not fully developed. And so some of their critical thinking skills are not in the same place as ours are. Um, and then I think really helping kids understand their media consumption and social media use and what does that mean and what role is it playing? And do they really understand that on Snapchat and on TikTok that not everything is true? There's filters. There's lots of ways to alter mm -hmm. what people look like. A lot of times on social media, people portray the best part of their lives and not right. all the other <laughs> stuff, right? That we all have good things and bad things and um, we have struggles. And so, again, kind of helping adolescents think about what they actually see in, in a little bit more of a critical manner. Um, and then I think if they are seeing something that is concerning, seeking help sooner rather than later, not kind of watching and waiting, um, because sometimes when you watch and wait, things can get bad really quickly. And then um, it's it can be hard to get the services you need, or maybe, you know, if you would have gone in for an assessment, um, when you kind of first started getting worried, it could be an outpatient remedy, but you waited, you know, long enough so where somebody needs kind of 24-7 care or day treatment or things like that. Jessica, did you have anything that you wanted to add to that? Yeah, when we see um, kids that like beyond like that beginning where you start seeing signs that maybe there is something with eating that isn't quite on right right um we make phone calls to parents we have lots of conversations we link in our support staff we have social workers and guidance counselors um so i usually i will talk to the student tell me like, hey i can help with this part and what if we talk to your guidance counselor have you met them and we go through those conversations about you're not alone let's let's work on this together um if it's like to the point where i'm concerned, then I call and I'll maybe recommend a visit with their primary doctor. Um, I've also given parents, um, there's this orange PALS card. Um, have you heard of this one where you can take it with you to your doctor and they can scan it and it helps connect you to like um, different mental health resources. Um, and it will tell you, it's like a fast tracker. It will tell you who's available and who has appointments sooner than later, which is really helpful because Right now, the, our, our supports are really, they're overwhelmed and there just aren't many open places to get appointments. And so this will help find some of those openings faster. Mm -hmm. um, if you, I mean, and it will help you. You can also put in, um, I'm fairly certain you can put in your insurance information in there. And so then it will show you places that are covered by your insurance. You should still always check, but it <laughs> kind of helps narrow down those places. So, um but that's kind of when I when I get to that point where I'm worried, I've linked in my support staff so that we have more eyes on a kid. We have f family conversations um, with their parents. Just we want parents to know. Um, and sometimes they know and sometimes they're like, what? And so and it's it's not that 
they're not observant people either. It's one of those secret things that kids are really good at hiding things when they want to. So any extra eyes is always, I'm a mom. I I like extra eyes. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. Um, I think that that's a great point that a lot of times, especially in middle school and and maybe in high school, I mean, always as humans, like things are secretive or it's secret secrecy. And you do, um, as school staff, you're with students during a pivotal part of their day. And a lot of times they're interacting with other kids, right? Like your kids have a different relationship with other students than they do when they're at home. And so I do think that school staff such as yourself do see kids in a different light and can see a lot of those behaviors that maybe parents don't see when they're at home because they're not seeing that social interaction each and every day with other with peers. So I think that's a really great point, Jess, that you had said that. Um, and then also knowing that there's a support system within the school. Maybe you don't see that student every day, but their third period teacher does or their their counselor. So there are different touch points too at schools where um, different staff are interacting with those those youth as well, which I think is really um, a beautiful thing that maybe I didn't have when I was in school and that I think has really changed um, since continuing over time with students needing more, maybe needing different things um, than maybe when you, were in, you or I were in school. So knowing that there is a support team. If Jess, if a parent were to call you and say, I'm worried about my kid, would you um, recommend that they have a conversation with their child? Is there a next step that you usually would refer them to? So if they're concerned, usually um, I'll have a conversation. I'll get some more information. Um, Oftentimes I'll call the kid down and um, have a conversation with them. If they have a relationship with one of our other support staff already, sometimes I'll go in that door and kind of have the support staff introduce me rather than calling them down cold because sometimes that can make kids really anxious. Like I'll call kids down for something (laughs) and they'll be like, am I in trouble? I'm like, I'm the nurse. You're not in trouble. Like (laughs) I'm not going to get you in trouble. I'm here to help you. So um, I'll start there because sometimes I think you have to, I, I like to hear what the parents are concerned about and then get a little bit of input. Sometimes I've, they've, parents have asked, can you ask their teachers if you see this? Like, are they doing this during the day? And I'll be like, sure. I'm like, you could email them if you're comfortable, but if you'd like me to, I'm happy to gather the information. So it's one of those other things that nurses do. We monitor, you know, we can collect data and monitor and kind of close that gap between home, school, and the clinic. How about, I know we've talked a little bit about Melrose and we've talked a little bit about what schools do. Um, are there resources available for families when they're considering treatment at Melrose and or other places in their community? Most eating disorder programs do not require a referral from anyone, right? You can call, pick up the mm-hmm. phone and call. Um, we don't require that. About half of the patients we see here at Melrose actually are self-referred. Um, so they call, schedule an appointment. One thing that we do here at Melrose Center is when a family calls and schedules um, an assessment with us after we kind of schedule it, we have um, financial workers that will verify benefits because um, it is important to understand what is your coverage. His, mm-hmm. Typically, actually here in Minnesota, we do most payers have good comprehensive coverage uh, for eating disorder care as well as other mental health care. Um, and so if during that kind of benefit review, we found out there was something that's kind of out of the ordinary, right, where maybe something wasn't wasn't covered or it seemed like it was going to be a big cost, we usually reach back out to the family just so they're aware of that before they do anything further. Um, And so I think it really is, you know, 
scheduling an assessment, uh, probably about 10% of the the assessments we do every month, it turns out the person doesn't necessarily have an eating disorder. And so we might do some education with the family about what to monitor, what to watch out for, maybe refer them for other types of mental health treatment and send them along our, along their way. So families don't need to feel certain that their, mm-hmm. their son or daughter has an eating disorder. Part of it is looking at what is going on here. Um, and then, you know, I encourage families to, you know, look at websites, um, listen to our podcast for more information to try to um, kind of be learning before you get here. Because honestly, eating disorder treatment can be, it's a big job. um, And it's not just coming to appointments, right? It's we, Mm -hmm. we need people, whether they're adolescents or adults, there's work that has to be done in between the treatment appointments. and schools oftentimes are very supportive of kids, um, you know, when they maybe have been out of school and they need to come back. We work with school nurses, school counselors all the time to help kind of keep eyes on, monitor meals, give the student a quiet place that's not quite as stressful as a school lunchroom to be able to make sure they're getting in their meal plan. Because um, one of you mentioned kids probably spend more time at school than they do actually at home with their parents, right? Um, and so they need support there too to be successful. When we we do provide um, quieter places for students to eat, um, that typically is not in the health office, um, only because we have kids that are sick with stuff and we do not want our, our kids that are working on you know getting healthy in other ways to get sick in other ways so um but it i know that a lot of accommodations are made there's lots of smaller little places actually closer to the lunchroom so they're near where the happenings of lunch should be but it's not necessarily in the lunchroom um so that's mm-hmm. been something we've utilized but we typically um do not keep them to monitor them in the health office just because we don't want them to get sick. I always like to tell people too, because I think sometimes there's this misconception that eating disorder treatment means you're going away for months at a time. Um, And actually 80% of the patients we see here at Melrose only ever need outpatient treatment. So, you know, doing a couple appointments a week for six to 12 months and they're good to go. It it is a very small percentage of people who are so ill that actually need um, kind of higher levels of care. Heather, have you seen an increase in males with dis- like with eating difficulties? We actually have. So also through the pandemic, we've seen a, about a 20% increase in the number of men and boys coming to our program as well. So about 15-ish on average percent of patients we see here every month for assessments are uh, male. And so, you know, I think again, a lot of times people have stereotypes about who who has who gets eating disorders, right? We tend to think of it as young, white, thin girls from kind of upper middle to upper class. And the reality is eating disorders actually don't discriminate. And so, you know, I mentioned last year we saw ages nine to 69. Um, we see men, we see women, 30% of the patients we treat are 35 and older. Um, we see, you know, transgender individuals, uh, um, other LGBTQ individuals, um, people from all uh, cultural backgrounds. And so it's important um, for us not to think, well, boys don't get eating disorders, so don't have to worry mm-hmm. about this, right? 
I've seen that at school um, in the last two years as well. Um, it's really interesting eating patterns for some of our kids. Yeah. Oftentimes for boys, it's a little bit different. Um, mm -hmm. Girls oftentimes are kind of striving maybe to lose weight or obtain, you know, kind of a more thin idealized body image, whereas boys are tend you know, tending to strive for a more kind of chiseled, muscular yep. look. Interesting. Um, mm -hmm. So again, depending on the kid's personality, they can take some of that too far, too far. and develop sort of a full-blown eating disorder. Yeah, the, the, the protein shakes and the supplements and as kind of an interesting, like, addition to add into that eating disorder or dysmorphic eating grouping. Yep. I think that that's a really great point. I mean, you mentioned it at the beginning of the podcast and again, that it is nine to 69. The, the people that you saw last year, it's males, females. It, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what your race is, that it can impact you or someone in your family. Um, and having tools or knowing that the school's there to help and that there's um, organizations in our community that you can Google and learn more about is really important because at some point you're going to know somebody that's having maybe not a full-blown eating disorder, but maybe questioning some things about their body or maybe not comfortable in their skin or a certain part of their body. And I think just knowing that there are resources and that it is okay to ask the questions. And like you had mentioned, Heather, just having the question early, asking the questions earlier. And um, if there is something that's alarming to you, getting help sooner than later, I think that that's really important because we know it can impact everyone or anyone. As we wrap up our podcast today, do either of you have additional thoughts or recommendations that you would want to offer to parents at Guardi and guardians that are listening to our podcast? Just talk to your kids. Keep the lines of communication open, non-judgmental. Just let them talk and listen. Love that. I would also put a, yeah, lots of listening and put a plug in for um, family meals. Um, we, we've really, really gotten away from eating together as a family. And um, the reality is that there's a ton of research out there that supports the benefits of family meals, families eating together, you know, the more the better. Obviously, most families, including my own family, we aren't able to do this every day. But there's a lot of protective benefits, not only around eating disorders, but around um, depression, anxiety, substance use, um, you name it. it typically, family meals can be beneficial because it does give us a time to connect, to mm -hmm. talk, to listen, um, and get a sense of how is my child doing? <laughs> um, and even though they might not share that much, um, it's more than <laughs> just kind of everyone going their own ways. I know and as humans, we just get so busy, right? And you don't really take, I, I don't always take the time to take the pause to like make sure I check in with my kids. But I think if you're able to, sometimes that family meal time or a meal together is really important. I know um, also then also when kids start driving, then you don't even have that time with them in the car. So you lose that as well. So having that family meal time, if it's not every day, maybe once a week on Thursdays, just really trying to sit down to have that time to connect as a family or family unit is really key. Yeah, and I would say we don't have to strive for every day because that's probably not realistic. But right. even once or twice a week, um, the benefits can be really helpful. 
And I do also want to put a plug in for the podcast at, that Melrose offers. I was listening to some of them and they have a lot of really great information on many different topics that go along with disordered eating or body image. So I would really recommend to any of our listeners that they check out that podcast as well. I just want to say thank you so much to both of you for being here and sharing some of the information and of the work that you do each day and for the support that you pr- provide for our communities and our schools. Um, it's really oftentimes goes unnoticed. So I just want to say thank you so much for all that you do. Thank you. And thank you for doing a podcast to get the word out. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you for listening. This resource is produced as a partnership between the Anoka Hennepin Parent Engagement Program and Student Services Department. Be sure to check out additional episodes in the Parent Engage 360 podcast series. For more information or to share feedback, visit ahschools.us slash parentengage360.